Let's uh, go ahead and and, uh, get started here. Uh, We're going to be looking tonight at Ezra chapter 3. And uh, I am grateful that uh, I don't have anywhere near the number of names that uh, Pastor Lawton got to pronounce uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, but there's a couple of them, not, not nearly as difficult either. So, um, but uh, let me uh, pray for us and then we'll, we'll get started. Our gracious God in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise on this night, Lord, that you have given us that we can gather together in your name. Lord, we can share in the sweet fellowship of the saints. We can enjoy a meal together. We can open your word and feast upon it as well. And we can join our hearts together uh, in prayer. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great uh, privilege that we have to do that. And uh, Lord, as we turn now specifically to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears to here to understand and believe, Lord, uh, what you uh, have spoken to us in, in these words. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for that you would bless our time, bless, Lord, the, the words that I speak, Lord, that they might meet uh, the work of your spirit in your people's hearts to accomplish, uh, Lord, your purpose in our lives. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, if you've ever been away from home for a while, as maybe some of you are even now, you you know that there are certain things that you begin to miss, right? Maybe certain activities uh, that you're accustomed to doing, certain foods uh, that you might uh, enjoy. Uh, If you talk to most missionaries, they'll tell you that after a few months on the field, they uh, begin to crave uh, certain things, certain foods like fresh fruit uh, in some cases or certain modern conveniences like flushing toilets. I remember uh, having grown up uh, in California and then living in Texas and then in Thailand uh, for a while. Uh, One thing that I wanted to do whenever I would return back to uh, to California, uh, the first uh, restaurant that I would want to visit is In-N-Out Burger. I don't know if any of you are familiar with In-N-Out Burger, but it's a distinctively uh, Californian uh, thing, although they've begun to expand. I guess it would be kind of like here, right? If you come back, you want to go to Chick-fil-A as soon as you return uh, to South Carolina, although Chick-fil-A is in California now, um, so we have it there. But um, anyway, there's certain things, right, when we're away that we uh, begin to miss and uh, which we begin to, to crave when we are away uh, for a while. Well, I share that because our passage this morning, we're going to see something of that which the Israelites began and were craving as they returned into the promised land, right? They'd been away from home for about uh, 70 years. Now, in most cases of the people who were regathering in the land, they'd never actually lived in the promised land. They'd been born in exile, but more than likely, right, they had heard some of the, the stories of, of, the, of the promised land and longed to, to see and to hear and to do uh, those things that they'd at least heard about. And so the question as we approach the text tonight is, what are those things that they loved and longed for? Right, so often those longings 
do give us a picture of one's true heart condition, don't they? And so we're going to see a picture tonight of that in the life of God's people as they returned from exile here in Ezra chapter 3. So let me read God's word for us. This is the word of the Lord. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required." And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and all the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the fountain or foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had been given or had that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together, supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Well, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, just to remind us quickly of the, the context of, of this story. Um, you see, this was, again, an important moment in the history of God's people. Uh, this, uh, the events, there's a couple of events really described here in these uh, in these verses, uh, it seems to take place over a period of time 
verses 1 through 7 seem to have taken place in the months or in the month of Tishri, which would be like this time of year, September, October uh, in our calendar. And then verses 8 through 13 seem to begin in the month of Ziv, which is April, May uh, time frame. So there, there's some months that are transpiring over the, the course of this one chapter. And uh, it was a significant time, of course, in the history of God's people. As I just mentioned, right, they uh, had been 70 years in exile, and now they were returning into the, the promised land, which, of course, was in accordance with God's promise uh, in Jeremiah 25 and, and 29, that it would be 70 years in exile before they would re-enter the land. And so now the Lord had opened the door through this pagan king to send the Israelites back uh, into the land to, to re-enter the land and to re-establish themselves in the place that God had promised And in these verses, we see the beginning of that work, the the rebuilding work that would take place in Jerusalem. But more importantly, I think in these verses, we see really the the priorities that were given uh, to that work of rebuilding, as well as the heart attitude of those Uh, who would come and be a part of that work. And so I want to look at three things, three aspects, really, of this passage uh, in the time that we have together. First of all, to see the importance of biblical priorities. Secondly, the necessity of full engagement. And thirdly, the disappointment of longing for past glory. So first of all, the importance of biblical priorities. When, when we look at this story, perhaps the first thing that should stand out to us is the priority that God's people gave to reestablishing worship in the land, right? Verses one and two say, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, earlier I mentioned this was in the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month in uh, the calendar. And that's important for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it's important, uh, it's an important month in the Jewish calendar uh, because it was the month that had a number of feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths or or Tabernacles. And so it it had all these very important uh, religious feasts, worship feasts uh, for God's people. But in this particular context, it's also important because it tells us that the Israelites had only been in the land for a very short time when they began the work, perhaps really only a couple of weeks. In other words, they hadn't really even had a chance to to settle in to their new homes or or get acquainted with their surroundings, right? They, They barely even had enough time to find a place to live, but immediately they got to work 
in building the altar or rebuilding the altar. Why? Because they understood the importance of worshiping God as he had called them to do, right? They, they understood that worship must be central to their lives in the land, their lives in this world. They understood, right, that, that worship was not just a, you know, convenient option if we have time for it. They understood that they needed above all else, right, to be in right relationship with God and a right relationship with people in doing that which they'd been created to do, which is to worship God. They, they, they knew, they craved that gathering together with God's people for the purpose of worshiping him. And you know, that's an important thing, isn't it? The, the importance, the, the need that we have as God's people to gather together with other believers. Sure, to gather together in, in fellowship, but also, right, to, to gather together in worship. And you know, it, it, that's an important thing to, to consider in this day and age in which we live, right? I mean, so it's so easy now to not, you know, see the importance of gathering together, right? We, we have everything we need right here on our phone. We can even attend worship on our phone, maybe. That we were designed to be together in one place to worship God as, as God's people, right? That what is in view here is not, right, just worshiping God or watching the worship service online without leaving our couches. It's, it's not the fitting it into our schedule as long as it doesn't impede too much on everything else we might have planned for the day. And of course, right, we're not talking about people who are homebound and, and need uh, that access uh, that uh, online uh, worship provides, but it's the, the need, and, and, and we see this here in the Israelites, they, they understood, they actually longed to gather together to worship God as he had called them to do live and in person. But as we look at this priority that the Israelites had, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we long for? Do we truly long to worship God with God's people in the place that God has given us to do that? Or do we really just want to check a box and get on with our lives? God's word encourages us, no, commands us to make worship a priority in our lives. And that's what this text shows us, uh, at least with those who were sent back into the promised land, those who had been without the ability to do it for a while, the desire to do that which they were created to do, and understanding that when we gather together in worship, 
in fellowship, in, in prayer, that it is a means of blessing in our lives, right? That in worship, God meets with his people in a special way. It's in worship that we encounter the, the primary means that God has given us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and, and prayer, It's when we gather together in in worship and even in fellowship that we stir one another up. We encourage one another face to face. And we do so more and more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. And the truth of the matter is that if we miss it, we miss out, don't we? Worship must be the centerpiece and priority of our, our weekly schedules. You know, as, as, as many of you know, uh, Samantha and I are kind of in that season in our life where our children are very involved with uh, activities and sports and, and all those things. And so we have to have uh, discussions about this thing. I, I mean, you know, youth sports is pretty much completely out of control at this point. And uh, so we allow our children, though, to play uh, sports, but we do it with one caveat, and that is if it ever interferes with worship on the Lord's Day, then we'll sit out that day. We'll sit out that game. And as a result, we've missed a few games our kids have over uh, the last few years in particular. And it, it's not a, you know, a legalistic uh, type thing. It's really, it's a, it's a matter of the importance and the priority that worship needs to have in our lives. We need to be much more concerned about our children's and our own spiritual well-being than anything else. And weekly in-person worship is indispensable to our well-being with God. But also notice here that they reestablished worship according to the word of God. Notice the language that's used here in this passage. In verse 2, it says, They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, they kept the feast of booze as it is written. Also, verse 4, they offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. And the, the point is that the Israelites were concerned in reestablishing worship that it be done faithful to the pattern that God had had given them, the standard that God had had given them. This is what theologians will call the regulative principle of worship. And I'm not going to dive too deep into that uh, discussion, um, uh, particularly with what it actually, what does it look like to faithfully be, apply the, the regulative principle, because there are a number of uh, views on that. But the gist of it is that worship ought to be ordered according to the standard of God's word. Right? That, it, that it ought not be driven by you know, culture, the cultural whims of the day, or, or pragmatic motivations particularly, but pr- the priorities given by God in the Scriptures. And, and yes, biblically ordered worship looks different now than it did in uh, the day that we're looking at here. The, for the New Testament church, it is, is different uh, prior 
uh, to what it looked like before Christ, the sacrifices and, and all that, right? And so in light of what Christ has done, in light of the fact that Christ has offered himself as the once for all sacrifice uh, for our sin, right? The worship looks much different, but the, the need to prioritize it and to do it according to God's word is still essential for God's people in every age. And so that's the, the first point, which is biblical priorities. The second is uh, what I've described as the necessity of full engagement. In verses eight and following, uh, we reread about the, the work of rebuilding that's taking place here. And it's important when we read this story to, to see the, the nature and the level of involvement of God's people uh, in this work. You, you see, as we, as we read this description, it wasn't just a select few. It, it wasn't just the, you know, the leaders, the, the priests or whatever that were involved in the work. Notice what it says there in verses 8 and following. It says, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning. Now, I'm going to just pause there. Zerubbabel and Jeshua were key leaders uh, in uh, the, uh, the church at this time. Uh, Zerubbabel was the heir to the Davidic throne, and Joshua was the high priest. And so they are key leaders involved here. But then it goes on, and it says, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Again, an important observation is that the entire community was involved in this work that God was doing, right? The Levites, you know, of course, they were appointed to oversee the work of the house of the Lord, and certainly there are some qualifications who were, that were given for those who would serve in, in different capacities. For example, the, supervi- uh, the Levites needed to be at least uh, 20 years old. Um, and of course, right, we do need qualifications in uh, any organization, including uh, the church. But the, the point, the, the, the broader point is that it took the entire community to accomplish the work that God had given them to do. When I read this, it reminded me of my installation service here uh, a year and a half ago uh, when John Bungie uh, gave the charge to the congregation, and some of you may remember this, but uh, you know he said we're, we're hiring Sean to to lead our missions ministry, but we're not hiring him to do all of the work. We're hiring him, or, or we're expecting him to have three thousand assistants to help him in his work of missions. And and some uh, came to me after that and said, "Well, as one of your assistants, how can I, you know, help?" Uh, and it was a, a great uh, encouragement and, and blessing. But the idea is that it, right, it takes the whole church to do the work of the church, to do the work that God has, has called us to, right? Uh, that it's not just the, the ministers and the directors and the paid staff that are called to do the work of the church. Rather, it's the whole church, that God has called to be engaged in God's work that he is doing around the world, the the work of making disciples, 
of all nations here in Colombia and around the world. In many ways, what is described here in Ezra 3 anticipates Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and following, which says, He gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That it is the entire community of God's people engaged that do the the work of the ministry. And so it's, again, a, a a call to, to pause and to consider each in our own hearts, right? How is God calling you to be involved in the work that he's doing, right? What, what opportunities has he placed in your lives? What relationships has he given you to, to foster, to be a, a gospel presence in that person's life? How can you use your gifts and talents for the glory of God and the good of the church and to be a blessing to those around you? This passage, I think, gives us a picture of what that can look like when it is a priority of God's people. But thirdly and and briefly, the disappointment that comes from longing for past glory It's just a fascinating description here at the end of this chapter because in verses 10 and 11, we see this great response of joy from some, right, as the foundation of the new temple is is laid and they they sing that responsively, it says, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel and all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid and there was great rejoicing because of the work that God was doing. But there's also the other side in verses 12 and 13 where it says, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. What is going on here with the weeping? Well, it seems that there were some who were mourning what they had lost. When they compared the work that God was doing in the present to the work that God had done in the past, they perceived that what God had done in the past was far greater than what he was currently doing. And they were overcome with sorrow and and mourning. And I think it's an interesting thing to consider how that can be a danger for God's people in any age, can it? That when we look at our current circumstances and perhaps compare them to a past season in our life when 
perhaps we felt like things were, were going well, we, we conclude that it pales in comparison to what God had done in the past, and we become discontent with God's work in the present. Sometimes I'll ask people, what was the best time in your life? Or what was, in what time in history would you most like to live? And seldom have I heard the answer now. And one might ask, well, why is that? And maybe some of you do feel that way, but, but why is it that so often we don't answer now? I suppose there could be a number of reasons, but could it be that we are rarely content with where God has placed us in the present or with what God is currently doing in our lives? And it's not to say that we shouldn't celebrate the, you know, the, the past victories, if you will, or, or God's faithfulness in the past. We, we should, and the Israelites certainly did that but not to the neglect of rejoicing in what God is doing today or what God is calling us to do in the future. In fact, I think there's a connection between them that we see here in this verse, which is right why the Israelites could sing what they did in verse 11. Right, even as they were starting from scratch to rebuild the temple, they, would, they could sing that psalm of David, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And I'm reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 13, when he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and then verse 19, you are, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit that God continues to to build his church through people like you and me, that he has taken from the place of alienation to a place of fellowship and intimacy with him so that he might build his temple and so that true worship might be displayed in all the earth. And so, let us be encouraged by what God has done, but also by what he is doing and what he will continue to do to build his church so that we might be a part of his mission in this world, which is to make disciples of all nations, beginning in Columbia and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you once again for your your faithfulness that we, Lord, can proclaim that you are good and your steadfast love 
endures forever for your people. Lord, we thank you for that and ask you, Lord, that you would work in us, that you would use us to be a reflection of that that goodness to those around us, that your steadfast love would shine brightly, that many would come, that they would see the truth of your gospel, and that they, Lord, would worship you with us forevermore. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.